Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Netanyahu has gone saying hallelujah until you read the Haaretz profile unlocked for one day only on the man that's taking his place. As Gideon Levy told us not once but twice, the people coming in after Netanyahu are even worse than him. But still, call it schadenfreude if you like. I cannot help popping a cork and drinking some metaphorical champagne at the fact that this war criminal is no longer the Prime Minister of Israel. And I hope that he spends uh, some years behind bars, as Israel is wont to do with miscreant leaders. Prime ministers and presidents have been sent to prison in Israel. Doesn't happen in many other countries, got to be said. And Netanyahu, now that he's no longer prime minister, will have to face the music of the indictment now leveled against him. That's just broken literally in the last few seconds on the BBC. The Israeli parliament has given its approval to a new coalition government. And after what seems like decades, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is no more. These are my own views, of course. They're not necessarily the views of the management. In fact, almost certainly not the views of the management. But contrary to any other television channel, I'm free here to speak my own views. No one ever interferes with my content here. Something to which I shall return later in my monologue. I said earlier today that it was not difficult for me to support England against Croatia. And there were many reasons, football as well as other, for doing so. But the game of the tournament so far had a real anti-colonial feel to it also. The Austro-Hungarian Empire used to rule what is now Northern Macedonia, and it showed Northern Macedonia were at it from the first whistle. I think it was a draw, I had to miss the end, but the real winner was Northern Macedonia playing at their first uh, uh, big competition, their first knockout tournament of this size and nature. Well done, Northern Macedonia, well done, England. And it will be a bit like that next Saturday when England hosts Scotland at Wembley Stadium. On paper, of course, the England team is far, far better than the Scotland team. But as Bill Shankly famously opined, it's on Friday, by the way, but as Bill Shankly famously opined, 
football's not played on paper, it's played on grass. And Scotland will feel like 15 or 16 men on the park rather than 11. Because it's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And England can be sure that Scotland will fight like 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 brave hearts on the park at Wembley. And of course, although I wanted England to win today, I will not on Friday. But football, of course, missed a heartbeat or two uh, just the other night when the Danish player Ericsson, Christian Ericsson, suffered a heart attack on the field of play. The response of both sets of fans, both sets of players, and the medical staff was really quite miraculous. Uh, the Finnish rivals to Denmark uh, cheered Ericsson's name for the remainder of the game when it resumed. In fact, they sang a duet with the Danish fans chanting his name. The Danish team formed a protective ring around their stricken player because inexplicably, some television channels, including the BBC, gave us long lingering shots of a man they must have believed was actually dying on camera. And just to cap it all, long lingering shots of his weeping, distraught wife being comforted by the captain of the Danish football team. It was the latest in a long, long line of disastrous decisions by the BBC, which is just still more reason to welcome on air at eight o'clock this evening, Andrew Neil's GB News. I have known Andrew Neil since he commissioned me to write a double page spread in the Sunday Times when that was something to have almost 40 years ago, and a very good show they gave the piece also. Andrew Neil was then, as now, politically very far distant from me, but showed in commissioning me that he was more interested in getting to the truth, getting to the heart of the matter, rather than following some preordained script. And I believe he's never changed on that. You've all watched him for years on the BBC, giving just as hard a time to Boris Johnson when he's able to catch up with him, when Johnson's not running away. And if he does run away, then his uh, subordinates get it from Andrew Neil, as he gave to Jeremy Corbyn or anyone else. The point about Andrew Neil is he knows his stuff. And it's without fear or favor that he goes into these interviews with politicians of all stripes. So I don't share the view, much expressed on what calls itself the left, that this is going to be some kind of Fox News. Like Sky and the BBC are somehow paragons of virtue in any case. They're not and neither will GB News 
be Fox News. There are far too many sensible people that are going to be appearing on it. And Andrew Neil is far too sensible to position his new baby in that part of the market. So although it starts at eight o'clock and I don't want you to switch over, if you must, if you really must, then keep us both on at the same time. He's on the television screen, we are on the computer. The BBC and Sky for that matter have asked for it and they've been at it again all weekend. Uh, the coverage of the G7 in Cornwall is so biased in favor of auto-Europeanism uh, that it is almost laughable. Now, I have no position on the sausage wars uh, over Northern Ireland. And as is well known, I've said so many, many times over many decades, I have all my life favored the reunification of Ireland, but by the consent of the people there, not by the sordid anti-Brexit maneuverings of little Emperor Macron. And that's what's happening here. But you wouldn't know it if you were following the coverage of the summit from Sky and the BBC. The automaticity with which, in which, they take the side of Macron and Merkel and von der Leyen and the European Union's bloated, corrupted dictatorship against their own country is really something to behold. And it provides actually the perfect backdrop for Andrew Neil's new television station, which will have no automatic bias towards the EU no automatic bias towards Scottish separatism to punish Britain for having voted to leave the European Union and perhaps above all and in the longer term. No automatic bias towards liberal wokeism. I was accused on Twitter, I think for the first time, this very evening of being a gammon. Now, some of the uh, viewers and listeners overseas will not necessarily know what a gammon is. It's true that I'm white. It's true that I'm straight. It's true that I'm married with six children. For some liberals and so-called leftists, that means I should get my coat. Uh, but my sleeves on my coat are rolled up to fight for what's right, to fight for the interests of the working people. And if that makes me a gammon, well, give me the pineapple now and set it upon my breast. I am not a gammon. I don't believe that GB News will be gammon TV, but it's come to something when people are boycotting advertisers on a channel that doesn't even begin broadcasting for another 47 minutes. I personally believe uh, that the woke liberalism of Britain's media, particularly its broadcast media, uh, the Europhilism, Philistinism, Europhilistinism of their coverage of Brexit and its aftermath 
the automatic way in which they take the side and the part of other countries against our own, the way that they seek to present the culture and the values of the people of these islands, leads me to believe that they are broadcasting to a nation that they hate. They really don't like the British people. They don't like how they vote, how they think, how they voted over Brexit. They don't like how they live their lives, which are as different from theirs as it's possible to imagine. A friend of mine works in a very, very big media house, and she was the only person in the building that voted for Brexit, because all the others were enjoying the cheap baristas and au pairs, glaziers, plumbers, bricklayers and joiners that came their way in an endless stream from the cheap labor markets of East and Central Europe. I myself believed in Brexit and believe in it still. Not because it is, uh, necess it's necessary, but not because it's sufficient. It's not sufficient, but it is necessary if we're going to build the Britain that I want to see in this green and pleasant land. Now in the week that a man was swallowed uh, by a humpback whale and spat out again, a lobster farmer, in the United States, we'll be taking a deep dive with sharks. Real ones and metaphorical sharks. The kind of sharks that have made literally billions of pounds and dollars selling to the government inefficiently and in some cases undoubtedly corruptly during this pandemic. We'll be looking at the sharks that have doubled, tripled, quadrupled their businesses without paying a penny extra in tax when they should be paying decent levels of tax all the time and a windfall tax, a corona tax on the excess profits that they've been able to make as a result of other people's misery and the destruction of other businesses on the high street, small and medium sized and even one or two large businesses. We'll be uh, talking about the American media market with the absolutely wonderful Rachel Blevins. And the British media market maybe get a review of GB News from the irrepressible Patrick Christie's. All of that coming up over the next three hours on the mother of all talk shows. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate. Great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there. You know, I had a great mom. She was Scottish. Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin skinned and full of crap. My good colleague, Rachel Blevins. Uh, of RT America. Uh, she's been off for a couple of weeks. We've had stand-ins who were good, but not as good as Rachel herself. I'm glad to say she's back now. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Uh, be sure we missed you. Uh, what can you tell us about the, the mass shootings, or is that just actually such 
a low level of fatalities that hasn't even appeared on your news. You know, it's interesting, George, how the media decides to cover a lot of these shootings. And obviously, it is absolutely tragic anytime you hear news like this, and especially when you hear news of a number of mass shootings happening in multiple cities in such a short time frame. But it is notable how the media decides to cover it, you know, whether they decide to speak of the shooter as a terrorist or whether they decide to simply say that he was mentally ill or having issues here and there, or even how politicians decide to respond to it. I know that the Biden administration has said that they really want to take on the problem of mass shootings, but of course it all comes right around back to Congress and whether or not anything that they pass is actually going to have any meaningful consequences because a lot of times what we find with a number of these shootings is that the shooters already had a gun illegally or in some cases they would have already passed the background checks that congress wants to enact so it really is a multi-layered problem that unfortunately there's no administration that is going to be able to come in and come up with some magic solution that is going to solve it all together but I think when it comes to the media coverage, I mean, in some cases you don't hear about them at all. And then other cases they get days long coverage and it just seems to be exactly whatever narrative they fit, so to speak. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, because you know me, I mean, no disrespect at all to the great American people. But watching closely your president here in England, in Cornwall at the G7 summit, I've got to tell you that I wouldn't send that man out to buy a loaf. Uh, I would have absolutely no confidence that he would come back safely and with the loaf and the proper change. Uh, he was captured on camera multiple times, literally lost, and his wife chasing after him as one would a toddler uh, to, to grab him and turn him around and point him in the right direction. Has any of that made it into American discourse, into the American media? You know, it's funny that you bring that up because no, not at all. I mean, if you look at the media coverage of Biden's appearance at the G7 summit, you would think that it was all sunshine and rainbows and that everything was just absolutely wonderful. And it's funny because I was reading this article earlier that was published by CNN and literally the entire article was devoted to talking about how great it was that Biden was at the G7 and not Donald Trump. And they went on and on to say how all of the leaders were just at peace having Biden there and they were so glad that they didn't have to deal with Trump. And then they included this one short little paragraph talking about how there were a lot of tensions between the leaders when it came to China and then went right back to saying, well, at least Biden's there. So I think the, sp the spin that you're seeing the media put on this right now is incredibly concerning, especially when we look at the fact that this is just the beginning of Biden's appearances that he is going to be doing this week. I mean, he's setting up for a one on one meeting with President Putin in just a few days. So it makes you wonder if they're already putting such a spin on it right now, then what do we have to look forward to this week? Well, uh, Mrs. Biden will definitely have to accompany him uh, to the meeting with Putin and probably straighten his tie and make sure he's not drooling. It's that bad, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, Rachel. Um, now, although Russia and China weren't at the G7, uh, they, they were living rent-free uh, in the G7's heads. Uh, I suppose that was a dominant part of the discourse about it. 
It certainly seems to be that way. And this is yet another summit where we're seeing Russia and China be the main topics. And yet they're not countries that any of these countries are actually at war with. So we know that they are likely watching these talks that are going on. We know that they are watching the headlines that are coming out of these talks. And certainly they must be wondering why they have the United States going up and saying it's time to counter China, to counter Russia, to really build up tensions. But yet on the other side of things, the U.S. wants to talk the talk, but they don't really want to walk the walk. I mean, they can say that they want to ramp up a trade war with China or that they want to ramp up their military presence around China, but they're not willing to completely cut off their reliance on China. And at the same time, when it comes to Russia, you know, I think that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is the perfect example here because we're watching the United States for the last several years. It has literally threatened sanctions against some of its closest allies in Europe over them allowing a pipeline connected to Russia when it has nothing to do with the United States. And yet the U.S. has really ramped up those tensions. They're pulling back a little bit now. But at the same time, we found out that in 2020, the U.S. imported a record amount of oil from Russia itself. So they're happy to talk to the rest of Europe and to tell them about how they really need to be ramping up tensions with these two countries. But at the same time, the U.S. itself is kind of going back and forth on exactly how it wants to treat them. It wants to talk tough when it comes to that rhetoric, but then it actually doesn't want to follow up in a number of those actions. That is a fascinating series of points. Now, I can tell you that the G7 leaders were undoubtedly uh, happy that Trump wasn't there. And uh, however ineffectual uh, Joe Biden might have been, uh, obviously when he's got an auto cue in front of him, he can still read it. Uh, it's in the offstage, uh, informal moments uh, when he's uh, exposed. Uh, but they're very glad that Trump wasn't there. A lot of people are very glad that Trump wasn't there. His behavior was abominable. Uh, even uh, even to the Queen, uh, Donald Trump uh, was undoubtedly a boor, a vulgarian uh, of uh, of uh, quite extraordinary proportions. You mentioned the Nord Stream two. Him and uh, uh, and Mike Pompeo behaved towards European countries like they were in the Sopranos uh, over <laughs> uh, the Nord Stream two. They were bullying browbeating, threatening. At one stage, the Germans even offered Pompeo a one billion euro bribe to allow them to continue to do what was their sovereign right to do. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that Trump was good or anything, far from it. But I mm -hmm. kind of do miss him. Uh, American politics was much more interesting when he was there, the G7 would have been more interesting if he was there. I'm wondering if anyone in America feels the same. Well, I would argue that the mainstream media feels exactly the same way right now. That's why they keep bringing Trump up in all of this. They keep reminding you of what it was like when Trump was there. And, you know, it's interesting because we watched for several years CNN, Fox News, The New York Times. They all wanted to talk about Trump nonstop. And now that he's kicked off of social media, now that his presence has kind of been belittled in every way possible, it's interesting to see how they have turned. They're not 
talking badly about Biden, but the person that they are presenting a lot of negative coverage about right now is Vice President Kamala Harris. Oh. We're watching as, you know, over the last week, we saw her in Guatemala, her speech that was heard around the world saying, do not come to the United States. We saw some of the interviews that she did after that when she made it clear that it was okay that she hadn't been to the border, even though that was her exact assignment. But at the same time, she said that that was fine because she hadn't been to Europe. And it's funny to see the media kind of do this turn and all of a sudden they have made Kamala Harris the problem, not just with the Biden administration, but with the Democratic Party. And so I think it's interesting that now all of a sudden she is the bad guy while Biden is the golden child trying to find his way around the G7 summit. It was extraordinary, her performance in Guatemala, a country in which, by the way, the United States has repeatedly overthrown uh, its governments, uh, uh, installed its puppets, uh, helped to wreck its economy uh, by its uh, neoliberal economic prescriptions. And then Kamala Harris, the nice cuddly Democrat, shows up in town uh, to tell them not to dream of coming to America. The very thing they excoriated Donald Trump for doing, albeit in probably uh, inferior syntax. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because that's just another example of how these policies aren't changing. I mean, Kamala Harris was there talking to a country that, like you said, has been directly impacted by U.S. foreign policy and a number of reasons why these people are fleeing their homes and their countries and putting themselves in direct danger to try to get to the United States to seek asylum is because of those policies that were put in place in the first place. And yet it's just another reminder of how much really hasn't changed between these two administrations. I mean, whether it's Harris talking about immigration and repeating talking points from the Trump administration, or it's Biden saying that he's not going to pull back on tariffs against China. He's not going to pull back on this continued mission to increase tensions with China and Russia. I mean, it really makes you wonder why there isn't more of a focus. And of course, we can't expect it from the establishment media, but why there isn't more of a focus on just how much the status quo has continued from one administration to another. And the only thing that's changed has just been these talking heads who now we're talking about the other aspects of them or what they said and did. And yet that seems to be the only meaningful change. How wonderful to have you back, Rachel Blevins. Remember your name. I know you remember your name. I want everyone to remember your name. You're going far. Thanks very much indeed for joining Thank us you. on the mother of all talk shows. Gosh darn. How do you get this thing to work? Ah, uh, is it that one? Is it, is it this one here? Gosh. Was this thing built in America? Jeez. Kamala, would you get in here? I can't get the, uh, gosh darn wireless to work. <laughs> you know I can't answer questions, Joe, when I'm laughing. I'm trying to, uh, listen to that Scottish guy on the wireless. The, uh, the, the Galloway fella. Oh, Joe, you're so funny. <laughs> I've been pressing this red button on and off and on and off. Heck, I can't get it to work. Uh, hello, Biden residents. 
Mr. President, be advised, we have executed the airstrike on Syria. <laughs> That's just great. Uh, how long until it gets delivered? I'm starving. I asked you earlier, why is Canada in the G7? That's our poll this evening. Perhaps I should explain myself. The G7 is supposed to be a grouping of the biggest economies in the world. And Canada is not one of the biggest economies in the world. It's supposed to be a grouping of democracies, but most democracies are not in the G7. India is the biggest democracy in the world and isn't in the G7. Indonesia is the second biggest democracy in the world and isn't in the G7. There are lots of democracies nearby to Cornwall that are not in the G7. And then I heard it was about values. So let's examine, if we can, Canada's values. In this context, and there are many, many more, a country built on the graves of the indigenous people of Canada who were ruthlessly massacred and suppressed throughout North America, but in cuddly Canada just as much as ugly America. But the Canadians had a special twist to all of that. Hundreds of bodies of indigenous children have just been exhumed in the grounds of schools to which they were forcibly sent as late as the 1970s, having been taken by force from their parents so that they could be educated in the Canadian way, according to Canadian values. And hundreds of them never came home and were buried there in unconsecrated ground in the grounds of those schools. And Canada has done nothing to make amends for that. So values, Canada, police. Now, that's the uh, poll. Why is Canada in the G7? A, lots of snow. B, lots of money. C, lots of values. You can vote on my uh, Twitter feed. Now, am I going to Professor Deirdre? We're going to a call first. It's Jamie in Malaga. Go ahead, Jamie. Good, good evening, George. Good evening. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Welcome. Uh, seems, seems to be, okay, seems to be rather an echo, but it's better now. Um, uh, really just to say about the two events relating to, to Julian Assange, um, one of them is that uh, 24 UK MPs have signed an open letter and sent it to Joe Biden. Uh, uh, dated Only 24, yes, yes. Um, you know, asking him to drop the charges and explaining the, the effects this will have on the freedom of press and the First Amendment. So uh, that's something that I hope he will have read before he went to Cornwall for the G7 summit. Um, at the same time, there's a tour, the home run tour of America, I think 21 different cities being carried out by um, uh, Julian's father, John Shipton, and brother, Gabrielle. 
and uh, it's quite amazing the energy that they've got and one of the interviews I saw uh, with them was one of the events was in New York on Thursday last week where uh, there was Roger Waters who spoke who was brilliant and, oh, and, I, and equally. The, I didn't realize that was the tour that was a brilliant interview with Roger Waters of Pink Floyd Absolutely, just amazing. I mean, what a brilliant person. I think he's 77 years old and just keeps fighting for, for human rights he's and a activism. Model. He's and a model for us all, Jimmy. He's an absolute yeah. hero. An absolute hero yeah. on Palestine, on Assange, on all the big political questions. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, uh, he also and equally, told Facebook to get stuffed when they asked for uh, permission to, to use... <laughs> another brick in the wall in their advertising. The same Facebook that deliberately, willfully, and illegally, in my view, actually took a Palestinian flag out of Roger Waters' hands from a picture he had posted on Facebook and left him empty-handed. Uh, absolutely dis dis disgraceful. And I think his, his, the, the words he used... Uh, for, for Mark Zuckerberg were, were, were not too as polite strong. as the ones they you gave. They were too strong to broadcast here. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then the other person who spoke was Chris Hedges, who, who's quite incredible and, and explained the case and the, the, the danger to, to really, you know, democracy and the free world. If, if, if this goes ahead and Julian is taken to, to, to America, I mean, it'll be an effective de death sentence. God bless all of those on the home run tour. Uh, and uh, all I can say is I'm sorry to say that there were only 24 British MPs signed uh, a statement of such historic importance. Uh, but don't count on Joe Biden reading it. I'm not sure uh, exactly what his reading age is these days. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jamie. Now, Professor Deirdre Heenan is professor, professor of Social Policy at Ulster University. I said earlier that the sausage war and the chilled meats affair is, has not grabbed me uh, personally, uh, but it's quite clearly uh, a cause, if you'll forgive the pun, a bone of considerable contention between Britain and the EU whether genuinely or not, and it has the possibility of causing real trouble on the streets of Northern Ireland. Professor Deirdre, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Most grateful to you for making the time to explain to us about the sausage wars. Well, uh, first of all, can I allay your fears that people in Northern Ireland can indeed get sausages if they want sausages, and this has been how this issue has been depicted in the British media, but it isn't actually an issue really about sausages. It's a bigger issue about trade and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the reality is that whatever you think of Brexit, whatever your views were to leave or to remain, the reality is how the British government have treated Northern Ireland in this negotiation and subsequently is a damning indictment of them. So we were told that when the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed, that it was a great day, a fantastic day, and there would be no checks to GBNI or NIGB, that there would be free flowing trade. The reality is 
That is not the case. And in terms of sausages, um, it, is, it is not possible to move chilled meats. And that's why this has become known as the sausage war. We're currently in a grace period agreed by the British government and the European Union. But that grace period is due to end in July. And then there are real worries that people will be able to see that in fact there is an Irish Sea border, that it becomes a reality, and that the government can no longer say, oh, this border doesn't exist. Now, of course, another difficulty is the British government have then said that they will unilaterally extend the grace period, uh, thereby breaking the law, breaking an international treaty that they signed up to. And the European Union have said, if that happens, then they will be forced to take action. So essentially, at the heart of this is dishonesty and mistrust. And people in Northern Ireland, in particular, whatever community they come from, feeling that they have been treated particularly badly, that Northern Ireland has been sacrificed on the altar of a hard Brexit. Well, there are a number of things at the heart of it, and that may well be one of them. Let me run a couple of the others uh, past you. Uh, I warned everybody not to trust Boris Johnson, uh, but they did, including the uh, people elected to represent the unionist uh, side of politics in Northern Ireland. Uh, the line down the Irish Sea, uh, which is where, personally, I believe the border between Britain and Ireland should be, uh, has not got the consent yet, at least, of the people of Northern Ireland, which is required under the Good Friday Agreement. So why were the unionist politicians so gung-ho for Brexit when this was undoubtedly one of the obvious consequences of it? Well, I think the issue uh, in political circles in Northern Ireland is why indeed did the DUP, the only party in Northern Ireland, support Brexit against the wishes of the majority of people in Northern Ireland and never explained what they viewed to be uh, the benefits of Brexit. And then when they were in the Confidence and Supply Agreement, hitched their wagon to the hard right ERG. So really what happened is they were sold out by English nationalists uh, Boris completely blindsided them, and Ulster Unionists have painted themselves into a corner. They know that they can't abolish the protocol, even though the new leader of the DUP has promised that he will indeed get rid of the protocol, that the mitigations and derogations and uh, sandpapering off the edges isn't enough for Unionists, because in the end, for Unionists, this is not actually about trade. It's not actually about sausage wars. It's not about chilled meats. It's their belief that that border down the Irish Sea has impacted on their identity and part of their British identity. And whilst you say consent is a principle in the Good Friday Agreement, yes it is, but it is around a certain principle. It's not consent for everything. Not everything has to be measured up against that consent principle. So for example, the DUP are now complaining about consent, yet uh, the majority of people in Northern Ireland did not want to leave the United Kingdom, or the European Union. More importantly, the majority of people in Northern Ireland uh, did not support a hard Brexit, but we were not asked for our consent around that, yet the DUP supported that in the negotiations, supported the ERG, and turned down a no number of possibilities that would have led to a softer Brexit, where we wouldn't be in this problem. So I think when we talk about consent, we have to be 
careful what we're talking about. And also remember that the DUP supported the protocol when they first heard of it because they believed that it would come with a unionist veto. It was only when it became clear that there would not indeed be a unionist veto that they then said it was no longer a safe and sensible solution, which is how they described it in the first place. So consent cannot be consent of one community. And I think that is what's caused a great deal of anger and mistrust on the ground in Northern Ireland, that people really feel now the Good Friday Agreements were brought into this, that people are conflating issues. Uh, the consent is whether or not the majority of people want to remain in the United Kingdom. There's nothing written, written into the Good Friday Agreement that says you must have consent around an Irish sea border, because of course we didn't imagine it. But you quite rightly say that you and many other people, John Major came here with Tony Blair in 2016, and warned against Brexit because they said, inevitably, there would have to be a border. And that border would either be in the Irish Sea or on the land. But if we wanted a Brexit, that's what would happen. And they were dismissed as scaremongers, fear, project fear. But they were right. But it was totally dismissed by the British government and the DUP, who were intoxicated by the power that they had in London. So Brexit has acted as I said it would, uh, to people that used to be friendly with me and now are not, as an accelerator of Irish unity, because, of course, the easy way to avoid all of this and remain in the European Union, which you say the majority in the North want to do, is to reunify your small country. Well, I think the reality is, uh, the constitutional issue here was settled. It was settled after the Good Friday Agreement. People felt that if the day came that the majority of people wanted to be uh, part of Ireland, then we would have a unity referendum. But until then, the constitutional issue had that box seemed to be ticked for most people. There was no talk about a border poll. And if there was discussion, it was the idea that this would be some time off into the distant future. The reality is Brexit has thrown the constitutional uh, jigsaw into the air. We don't really know how the pieces are going to land, but we know that it has unsettled people, that people are no longer happy with the constitutional uh, issue as it stands, but that also that loyalists, unionists, nationalist Republicans feel that they've been duped by Boris Johnson and this government. So when we hear Dominic Raab on this morning saying how obnoxious it was of Macron to suggest that Northern Ireland was different from other parts of Britain. Well, the reality is he and his government made it different. They put the border in the Irish Sea. They have unsettled people in Northern Ireland. And of course, the real worry is that what we may be looking into is a long, hot summer, because we're coming into the traditional marching season in Northern Ireland in July. And loyalists are particularly unhappy. They feel isolated abandoned, um, betrayed by the British government. And that's not good for anyone in Northern Ireland. There's no schadenfreude here because if people are unsettled, and that violence often spills over into the streets and cannot be contained. So I think actually Boris Johnson has a duty to be honest with people here, to say he signed up to this in the protocol and to explain what mitigations he may be seeking. But to try and suggest that it's the pesky EU who forced us to do this or forcing us uh, to comply with an international agreement that we negotiated 
that we signed up to, that we ratified through Parliament. I mean, it's just entirely disingenuous. And I think people both these, are but, uh, Professor, both these things can be true. Uh, if you think that Macron et al. and the EU bureaucracy uh, love Ireland and lie awake at night uh, uh, fearful for its future, I've got to tell you, you are quite wrong. Uh, they are using, they are using uh, the Irish border issue uh, as a stick to beat Brexit with. It's the long Brexit, this. They don't give a damn about chilled meats uh, in the six counties that they, they hate the fact that Britain voted to leave. The, the reality is, though, the British government negotiated and signed a protocol, an international agreement, and they have got to stick to the terms of that agreement, regardless of what France or Italy or any other country think of it. And we don't want to be stuck in the eye of a storm again Remember, the people of Northern Ireland have come through a great deal, and it seems that once again we're being used as political leverage. And what we're missing well, but here you're is being used by the EU as political leverage, but well, all, of your, all, all of your ire is directed at the British government. Well, my ire is directed at the British government because the British government are continuing to be disingenuous around this. Why don't they fess up to what they signed up to and either say, we didn't understand it, or indeed we did understand it, but we'd absolutely no intention of sticking to it. And once we got through and got Brexit done, then we thought we could renege on the deal. But the reality is Brexit isn't done. Brexit is a process and it has dramatically changed our relationships across the world. And the people who are suffering, the people who have been told mistruths, are the people in Northern Ireland. And I simply think whether it's France or the British government, we deserve honesty. The British government negotiated this with the DUP. This is what we're left with. So ideas of saying, scrap the protocol, uh, trigger Article 16, and then what? What happens then? We're still going to have a border somewhere. We, it's a trilemma. How do, how do we get away with having no border and protecting the, the integrity of the single market? Well, you, uh, there will be, always be a border, and that border now will always be in the IRC. The question is, does that have to bring everything tumbling down uh, over, uh, over foodstuffs? Uh, and the answer to that is that it doesn't unless people want it to. Uh, now, if you were looking for honesty, uh, you were looking in the wrong place when you were looking uh, at Boris Johnson. Honesty is probably the least of his virtues. Uh, and he launched his campaign to be the Prime Minister in Northern Ireland. He was supported by the Democratic Unionist Party, the representatives of uh, the Unionist population. It's take onion from pocket uh, moment here, Deirdre, because it's very hard to feel sorry about it. Well, of course, uh, on the one hand, you would have to say to the DUP, not all unionists, but the DUP own this. You are the architects of your own misfortune and you've got to just deal with it, suck it up. But the reality is, if that spills into marching on the street, protests, uh, people being promised that the protocol will be abolished, 
the DUP promising that that is what they're going to do, that they're not interested in mitigations and derogations, that they're going to be able to get rid of it, and of course they have nothing to replace it, then I think it goes back to people who are already feeling vulnerable, feeling isolated, know that they have been publicly humiliated. What's the answer other than political leadership that is about addressing those tensions, saying, yes, actually, we were completely blindsided, we were humiliated, you are quite right. We, we clapped and we cheered at the conference when he stood up and said, no British Prime Minister would have an Irish sea border, not over my dead body. And then he went ahead and did it. And not only did he do it, then he told the people of Northern Ireland that this Irish sea border didn't exist. It was a figment of our imagination. So I think, actually, the levels of dishonesty are shocking. And that is why I'm directing my anger there. Because the unionist people don't feel that they've been sold out by France or Germany. They feel that their sovereign govern, government, and they are the most loyal of British subjects, that they have been completely sold out and abandoned for an English nationalist project. And that's the reality. And many of them are now coming to see this. And if the British government are not loyal to loyalists in Ulster, who then are those Ulster loyalists loyal to? What are they loyal to? when they're so dispensable? Well, uh, from my point of view, it's been a misplaced loyalty all along. But I suppose that's part of a bigger debate, and uh, we didn't sign you up for that, and I shouldn't go... We can uh, do that another day. We'll, that is we'll another do debate. That, uh, we'll do that uh, another day. What we can't have, of course, and you kind of edge towards that, we can't be held ransom to... Uh, the prospect of the marching season. Uh, we can't be, you know, British policy cannot be dictated uh, by those that want to march in commemoration of something uh, 350 years ago nearly. Uh, Britain is beyond that, surely. Well, you're absolutely right. And the reality is, if our leaders, our political leaders in Northern Ireland, sold this protocol as the best of both worlds, saying that we have access that other people would give their right arm for, and that we can become uh, somewhere that businesses want to locate because we have access to the EU market and the GB market in a way that no other part of the UK has, then this could be sold as a bonus, a boon for Northern Ireland. But the reality is, as I said at the start, this is not about trade. This is about a belief that that border in the Irish Sea has impacted on uh, the constitutional status of people in Northern Ireland. Um, but the reality is it hasn't changed the constitution. The Good Friday Agreement still says uh, and still stands. So actually, it is, it's really about leadership and saying to people, you shouldn't feel abandoned. You shouldn't feel isolated. Yes, you were told mistruths. But the reality is you are still part of the United Kingdom until the majority of people want something else. And recent polls this week have suggested that the majority of people, a massive majority of people, do not want to be part of United Ireland. Now, other polls have said different things, but I think it all comes back to political leadership. If you're going to march people up to the top of the hill and tell them that they've been abandoned, that they've been betrayed, that they need to take action, then what do you expect to happen? The reality is it's about time that the leaders of unionism owned their own words, took responsibility for their own actions, 
and realised that if violence spills out onto the streets in Northern Ireland in the summer, the only people that will suffer are the people who are living here, the people who are actually burning down their own houses. What foreign direct investment would look at Northern Ireland on fire, the streets on fire, and think, oh yes, I think that's the place I locate my business for the future? The reality is it's up to us to contain the situation, and that's about honesty, but also about practical solutions and talking about betrayal, talking about taking action, uh, encouraging that type of behaviour is wholly irresponsible. So I think most people are calling on our politicians to be sensible, to ensure that they take the sensible route, to distance themselves from loyalist paramilitary groups, for example, who have put out a statement saying they want discontent. They want this volatile place to feel even more volatile. And that's wholly irresponsible. So I would actually like to see the British government coming here, reassuring people who feel they need reassurance and explaining what happened. I'm struggling to see what the reassurance would look like, Deirdre. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, the reassurance is that actually there is an Irish sea border but it does not change the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. Oh. That is contained in the Good Friday Agreement. There's nothing in that that says, suddenly you are more Irish than you were before the Irish Sea border. That is the reality, and that's a message that needs to go out there. Even I'm ready to reassure people on that. It's quite clear that Northern Ireland is uh, a part of the United Kingdom until a majority in Northern Ireland decide otherwise. But that doesn't get rid of the border and doesn't solve the chilled meats issue, does it? Well, look, firstly, we've always had some form of a border in the Irish Sea. So when we're talking about honesty, part of that honesty situation is saying to people in Northern Ireland, you were never as British as Finchley. Northern Ireland has always been a place apart for historical well, the reasons. Clue, the clues on the passport, it's Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yes. Well, so we are different. In fact, we I have... was once on Stephen Nolan's show and a very prominent unionist shouted at me from the audience, get back to Britain. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah, well, I had come from Britain. My point is this. Northern Ireland has always been different. We were never as British as Finchley. We're not going to be as British as Finchley. Um, and there were checks in the Irish Sea prior to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, of course, there's been a hardening of those checks. There have been more checks. 
But I think we have a joint committee. And if we work through the joint committee and allow that committee to do what it was set up to do, because remember, there's a framework and there's a legal process. And that framework is about saying, well, in reality, there are teething problems. There are issues that actually, of course, we got together. We could mitigate those problems. We could say this doesn't make any sense. But part of the protocol was about the EU trusting a third country to implement those checks. So you might say don't, attract, or don't direct your ire at uh, the EU. But have the British government act in a way that you would call trustworthy, that they could say, yes, these are trusted partners. We are willing to have more flexibility. We're, we're, we're willing to hand over uh, more checks and more powers. Of course they're not. And at the heart of this is about trust and about an international reputation that says once you've signed up to something, you stick to it. Okay, I'm being told to wrap this up, but in a sentence, could you answer me this? Are the DUP going to pay a price at the elections next year for their stupidity? The DUP are going to pay a price, but I think the interesting thing is that there will be a growth of the non-aligned in Northern Ireland, a, a move to the middle ground. Because people have tired of sectarian politics, tired of tribal politics. And the vast majority of students I teach are interested in the economy, their future, their freedoms, a liberal society. They're much less interested in the old tribal politics. These are the post-Good Friday generation. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Deirdre Heenan, it's been fascinating talking to you. I've kept you much longer than we promised, and you've been most gracious about it. Thank you very much for joining okay. us on the mother of all talk shows. How's the poll doing? Why is Canada in the G7? Lots of snow, 40%. Lots of money. They've not actually got lots of money. It's a small economy. Uh, 42%. Lots of values, 18%. From the makers of Track and Trace comes the Boris Johnson sat-nav. Right, uh, next right. Uh, no, left. I, I mean left. Uh, what? Yes, I... Yes, no, this left. Oh, crikey, you've missed it, bugger. Um, oh, bloody Tories. Or, or have you? Ah, uh, turn around. Or, in fact, don't turn around. Carry on. Yes. You have arrived at your destination. Now, uh, James Glancy is a wildlife conservationist, filmmaker, and director of a conservation charity, Veterans for Wildlife. His new documentaries are on wildlife conservation, and his charitable work is now legend. I hope that he is with us now. James Glancy, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. We've got a video to show of you, which is apparently, I've not seen it myself, quite breathtaking. So hang on there while we watch it. In 2019, after filming a show for Shark Week, I went to El Malik Island to see these amazing organisms for myself. So how is it possible to swim with these jellyfish without getting stung? Well, this species of jellyfish does have stinger cells, but they are not powerful enough to cause harm to humans. They've evolved to live on algae that are attached to them, and therefore 
they don't need their stingers to catch prey. That means you can swim with them and not worry about getting stung. In 2005, there were over 30 million jellyfish in the lake. But they disappeared after an El Nino event in 1998. Fortunately, since then, they've made a comeback. Jellyfish Lake is around 12,000 years old what and 30 film. meters deep. It's a remnant of the last ice age, where during that time, the sea level rose to the point where seawater began to fill the basin. As sea levels receded lower than the surrounding hills, there was no place for these jellyfish to go. So they are stuck in this lake, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. James, swimming with jellyfish would be almost as frightening for me as swimming with sharks, which I know you also do. I mean, I know it's a banal point, but how many of them stung you? And if they didn't, why didn't they? Yeah, well, George, uh, it's great to join you tonight. That was on the back of making a documentary in Palau, which is the world's first shark sanctuary. So a very special place because they have been overfished for over 20, 30 years by commercial fishing fleets. So the place was completely bereft of marine life. And when they created a marine reserve, it's all come back. So it's a fascinating place for tourists to visit. Now that, that lake in particular, that is just a, a relic of, that is just something created by nature. Jellyfish got stuck in this lake and they've evolved not to have a sting. So you can jump in there and swim with them. Absolutely brilliant experience. Well, now, now you're talking jellyfish that can't sting. Even I would swim uh, amongst those. Now you've seen the, uh, the nautical frolics off Cornwall and you've heard the uh, soft words uh, of the G7 about uh, resetting the, the environmental issues uh, climate change and the rest. Were you impressed? It's always hard to know with Boris because they're really making a huge effort um, with COP26 in Glasgow, as you know. They really want to set, um, they want to um, make an impact on the world and set a new environmental standards. But at the same time, they're tearing up pristine countryside for HS2. They're trying to increase road building and, and roll out uh, and roll back um, the beautiful areas of countryside to build over them over, the, over uh, in the United Kingdom. So it's always a mixed bag. I do think that Boris Johnson uh, is in interested in conservation of the environment, and I think he sees it as a win to get on side um, with Joe Biden. But I think we will only actually see if he's willing to put his money where his mouth is um, and make some real commitments to environmental and biodiversity causes when we get to COP26. Now, talking about the sharks, you've been diving with them, as I say. Let's take a quick look at that. Oh, you've got more videos. <laughs> Just while they set that up, let me uh, make this point to you. That uh, Boris Johnson is serious about the environment. Not necessarily because he's particularly green, uh, but he undoubtedly sees it as a kind of icon or emblem of the new global Britain post-Brexit uh, that he is trying to uh, float, if you'll forgive the pun. 
And you're quite right that the Democrats in the United States, who are in power for at least uh, another three and a half years, uh, are mad for uh, green politics. Other kinds of politics, not so much. So it uh, serves a, a double purpose uh, in, in that regard. So my view would be, although you couldn't trust them with your sister uh, or your wife, you could probably trust them uh, to be serious about the environment. Can I see this shark video now? Let me see it. If not, I can respond to that, George. Can you explain it to us? What's happening? Yes, well, well, George, this is off the coast of Britain, um, off the coast of Cornwall and Devon. We have blue sharks off our coast that you can swim with. They're totally friendly. They'll come up to you. They're like, they're like Labradors. It just shows the amazing biodiversity we have in our water. Sorry to hear background noise. I'm actually at the airport on my way to go and film another documentary. Um, so I'll be heading out of here fairly shortly. Let me just see you take the plunge. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing what we have in our own waters. And that's why there's be, there is such a battle going oh, on, wow. not only for fishermen's rights, um, for fishing rights, but also for creating marine protected areas around British coasts. Now, uh, James, you're telling me that shark is friendly. How, <laughs> how sure on a scale of one to 10 are you about that? Well, I've done that twice in British waters have been absolutely fine. Um, and I've done it with much bigger ones around the world. It's actually us that is the issue for sharks because we kill sharks by almost up to 100 million a year. Humans killing sharks in industrial fishing. And that's decimating their numbers around the world. So really, the shark has to fear humans and not the other way around. Well, I mean, if they've got no teeth or something, they look like they've got uh, the wherewithal. Uh... They're, they're, they're just little babies. Believe me, there are, there are more sharks you want to be fear, fearful of in Westminster than in our oceans. <laughs> well, we'll be talking about them uh, later. While I've got <laughs> you and before you get on that plane, James, um, what did you make of that story in the week about a humpback whale swallowing a lobster fisherman? Well, if it's true, it's a, an amazing accident and he's very, very lucky to get out of that alive. But you know what? Those whales are a, they're a good news story, a conservation good news story, because we stopped um, targeting them with the industrial um, whaling fleets was it 50 years ago and they have bounced back and their numbers are in the tens 20,000s all around the world but they were down to just a few hundred so that's a good news story and that shows what can be done when the global community comes together to have a moratorium on industrial fishing or industrial whaling i've only got a minute left of your time did you see the story this week about the sea snot in the uh, in the marmaras uh, sea in turkey no, I did not. You have well, to enlighten there, me. There is a film, uh, an ugly, slimy film, uh, two, three feet deep uh, in, uh, in the Turkish sea. Uh, no one knows where it's come from, uh, and no one wants to touch it to do anything with it. Not to put too fine a point on it, it looks like snot. Well... If it's natural, I'm sure it's not a problem, but you never know whether it could be man-made influences. Who knows? Check that one out. It was a very interesting oh, story. Have a safe flight, James, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us at more length. Absolutely fascinating work. How do people follow you? 
oh yeah i've got instagram facebook youtube all those usual social media channels as you too and yeah thank you for having me on your show tonight fantastic it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you very much james glancy that's g-l-a-n-c-y is a wildlife conservationist and as you've seen no mean filmmaker hey you do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now of course you do but getting to the heart of the story well that's going to take some hard work that's why here at the mother of all talk shows we've created that program just for you hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds get a perspective an education on stories from all around the world dissected and discussed with you join our debate vote in our polls on twitter tweet a question to george or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about join the college of knowledge where there are no tuition fees hosted by one of the world's greatest orators the mother of all talk shows with george galloway let's make sense of the world together now, regular viewers and listeners will know my view uh, that there ought to be criminal trials of our leaders for their many and various failures, neglect, negligence, and indeed corruption in their handling of the coronavirus. Uh, there is going to be a public inquiry, though inexplicably Dominic Cummings was right. It will not be until next year and will take several years, will not report before the next British general election. And therefore, the people will not be able directly to exercise their own verdict on the stewardship of a pandemic, uh, which has uh, cost the lives of a huge number of people, well into six figures, has cost the lives of many others because they were not able to get treatment because the health service was overwhelmed uh, by the coronavirus pandemic, all of which was predicted by the very same government we have now in their, uh, their um, wargaming of what would happen in a pandemic to the National Health Service. And that's before you begin to calculate the economic cost of the devastation that has been wrought on the British economy. Uh, by the coronavirus pandemic and on the mental health of so many millions of our people who've had to live this utterly abnormal life now for as long as some of us can remember. But some people had a good war against the coronavirus. Some companies, particularly companies like Amazon, uh, have had a bonanza of a time. Uh, their profits already gigantic have multiplied over and over again as a result of switches in the market which have had to occur because of the closure of stores and the restrictions on stores uh, that have variously afflicted us all of this time. The fact that the National Health Service did not have even basic PPE for its own doctors and frontline staff meant, for example, that it had to be procured on the market. And some remarkable people popped up to help the government out in their procurement. Friends, relatives, 
of government ministers, of civil servants, uh, bartenders to government ministers, have reinvented themselves as suppliers of PPE. And there are many, many other issues. Paul Heron is a lawyer, senior solicitor, and founding member of the Public Interest Law Center and has worked for many years in the law centers movement. Uh, my guess is that the law centers are going to be busy over the next few years uh, dealing with legal cases against the government, against the state, for losses of people and things that have been incurred in the course of this pandemic. Uh, Paul is an executive committee member of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, and I'm glad to say he joins me now. Paul, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start with my thesis. Uh, there's every reason to believe that there has been widespread either criminal negligence and or actual corruption in the way that government contracts have been showered like confetti upon supporters of the Conservative Party. Am I right? I think broadly speaking, George, you probably are right. Um, I mean, there's been numerous reports in all the newspapers about various contracts going to friends and and associates of various uh, government ministers. And in fact, um, Transparency International ran a, a report which flagged up, red flagged one in five of the contracts that have been granted during the course of the pandemic. And as you probably know yourself, there was a, a court case only last week where actually on, in one case involving uh, um, Dominic Cummings and Michael Grove, that uh, the court ruled that there was apparent bias. That's as far as it could go, what it was prepared to go, in, in relation to a, a relatively small contract that was given to a company doing public relations for the government. That contract was anywhere between half a million and 800,000. And the, the, uh, the court found and held that there was a barren, uh, apparent bias precisely because the contract, not so much was given urgently, given the urgent nature of what we were involved in, but more importantly, there was no scrutiny of how that contract was given. And the court accepted that there was apparent bias. Now, maybe in other countries, people or people on the streets indeed may not call it apparent bias. The, the runners of the, uh, of the case, the Good Law Project, call it, called it institutionalized cronyism. I think other people might call it something worse. Certainly, the you know phrases like corruption have certainly been banded around. And I think during the course of the next eighteen months to twelve, uh, eighteen months to two years, those these kind of cases are going to come more and more to court to look at the apparent bias, look at how these contracts have been given out um, with very little scrutiny in governments and very little scrutiny in senior civil service. Um, I would add one thing, interestingly enough, in the court case that was heard uh, and found against 
the government last week, actually senior civil servants were against the way in which the contract was being given to public first. And I think that's interesting to see how the civil service are going to react to the way in which the government has carried on over the, over the recent period. I'll come back to them in a minute. What are the consequences of that case that was lost by government ministers and uh, factotums? I mean, the consequences are really at this stage, George, it's a warning shot against the government. Um, as to whether there will be prosecutions, I think that's unlikely. Um, I, I heard you before talking about the possibility of criminal proceedings being brought. Well, obviously, uh, that's a case for the powers that be. Although, uh, as a public interest lawyer myself, one of the things that we've always been interested in and would certainly be looking at as information comes out is the possibility if the state is not prepared to bring criminal prosecutions against uh, government ministers, whether there's a, a, an orbit or an ambit or the appetite for bringing private prosecutions. Uh, the Public Interest Law Centre itself uh, recently brought a private prosecution against a Sri Lankan diplomat. So we're no stranger to private prosecutions, but really we've got to be looking at whether the state's criminal prosecutors themselves will look at prosecutions, particularly the way in which these contracts seem to have been handed out. Well, look, if you, uh, I mean, there are lots of countries that it's not worth comparing with. But if you look at Israel, uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, is very likely to go to prison, it might be some way down the line, for actually relatively, relatively petty examples of cronyism and corruption. This one you mentioned of £800,000, that doesn't sound all that petty to me. It's certainly much more serious uh, than the Netanyahu case. Uh, but of course, there are cases involving tens, sometimes scores of millions of pounds uh, that have uh, contracts have been given out to people with no track record uh, in the business concerned, companies that were just set up, the ink wasn't dry on their, uh, their company registrations, whilst actual businesses that did have a track record in those fields were passed over. Surely they've got a right to uh, demand prosecution or bring prosecution themselves. I mean, I think potentially the way forward uh, would be for uh, public interest lawyers like myself or the public law lawyers, certainly to, over the next period, to be looking to gather sufficient evidence in which to present to the state prosecutors in the UK. And certainly to be saying to them, this is just uh, you know, the, the, uh, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what appears to be uh, corruption, cronyism, whatever you call it. Because you're absolutely right in terms of some of the contracts that have been handed out. I mean, I think I read somewhere that a, a pest control company with about £19,000 in its books uh, managed to secure £109 million 
contract. Now, to me, on the face of it, that doesn't seem completely right. Uh, and it seems to be completely wrong that tested companies, I think there was reports of a company in Bolton that had a track record of producing PPE, actually wrote to the government and said, can we provide you with the PPE? And instead of uh, taking them up on that offer, uh, they didn't. They, they sourced uh, PPE in Turkey, which, which then proved to be you know, uh, not up to standard. And that same company was forced, or not forced, but quite happily, I presume, exported its PPE to, uh, to the United States. So I think there are cases there, and it should be handed over uh, to the DPP, to state prosecutors. Now, are the state prosecutors necessarily, even with a fraction of the evidence or even a lot of evidence, would they be prepared to prosecute? Possibly not. But maybe their failure not to prosecute would potentially be open to a judicial review itself, a challenge in the court of the failure of the state prosecutors to pull the cronyism and the obvious, um, you know, well, gangsterism, if you like, and call it to account, because you're absolutely right. This kind of thing really shouldn't have happened. And it happened primarily because two things, really. Number one, the government did not prepare, refused to prepare, and didn't see it as the serious way that lots of other people very early on were, were, were uh, seeing it. And, and the second thing is they ignored all the warnings. All the warnings were there straight away early on that this was going to rip through the country and they had a false ideology. And maybe that false ideology was linked to the fact that they knew after 12 years of austerity that the state, the NHS and various other, other uh, state agencies were not prepared, could not be prepared for this. And so there's lots of things stemming from this, which really should make not just uh, yourself angry and, and lawyers like me angry, but also the man on the street angry and really the trade union movement angry as well. Uh, the, uh, the cronyism, certainly if Scotland is anything to go by, the cronyism, I assure you now, will preclude any action by the state prosecutor uh, the, in, in Scotland, the state prosecutor is a member of the SNP cabinet. The SNP gave out £500 million worth of contracts, mainly to companies sympathetic to and in bed with uh, the SNP. So don't look for any prosecutions by the state north of the border. I doubt if it will be any different uh, here in, uh, in England either. But, for example, there was a cabinet member, an extremely important one, uh, who uh, did not know uh, that a company, 25% owned by him and the other 75% owned by a member of his family, got a whopping contract uh, to supply the government uh, with, uh, with uh, PPE and other medical equipment. As you do, you know, you're, you're a quarter owner of a company, you're in the government, you're in the cabinet, but you don't know that your company uh, is about to have a bonanza at the public's expense. 
uh, there's another cabinet minister, maybe it's the same one, uh, whose neighbour and publican, who served him pints on a Friday night, he also got uh, a bumper contract for supplying things that he'd never supplied to anybody in his puff. I mean, it stinks to high heaven, doesn't it? It, it absolutely do does. And I, I come back with, with two points. I think the first point is, I think most people would probably say with the 30-odd billion pounds that has been spent on the track and trace system is certainly not money well spent. Um, it's an app with a barcode, and that money would have, in my opinion, been better resourced either to frontline services or to local authorities so that we could localise the track and trace mechanism. I think that has been an appalling waste of money, £37 billion. Pounds. Yeah, it's the biggest scandal of them all. It's probably not corrupt. It's probably only criminal negligence. Uh, and that's what we voted for, uh, a government that is criminally negligent. Um, so I would pick up, though, on your second point about the... This, the I have, unfortunately, direct uh, experience of the, the, the sadly, the, the Scottish government. Um, as you may know, we represent a number of core participants in a current public inquiry on undercover policing. And we tried to extend the terms of reference to Scotland to allow that kind of thing to be covered in Scotland. And sadly, the Scottish government opposed us in court and would re and refuse to extend the undercover policing inquiry into Scotland, which I think, given the kind of uh, things we've already uncovered in England and Wales, is, is also uh, unfortunate that it wasn't, um, you know, kind of uh, gone north of the border as well to allow people who've been spied on over the course of 20, 30 years to come forward to tell their stories. Unfortunate so, yes. uh, indeed. Uh, Paul, thanks uh, very much for joining us. Paul Heron, uh, Senior Solicitor at Public Interest Law Concern. I'm very glad to be joined uh, by Patrick Christie, who is a media man of note himself and uh, who is a regular commentator on the media and politics in Britain. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again. I've got to say, from what I'm reading, uh, the, the launch of GB News is not getting rave reviews. It's a, it's a mixed bag. It started out with a couple of little basic errors, I suppose you could say. Andrew Neil, for example, the great Andrew Neil, of course, was wearing a black suit in front of a black background, so it did look a little bit like he had a floating head for quite a while. There were some issues... That would never be allowed on here. No, you could, no, you could never do such a thing. You know, I wouldn't fly here, would it? And um, I, there were some issues. So, so some of the sound was a bit out of sync with with what well, with where the lips were moving. It looked like uh, quite a, a badly dubbed Chinese movie for a little while. Um, but on the whole, now things have sorted themselves out. Dan Watson is currently in full flow. And I think, look, at the end of the day, yes, their graphics do look a little bit cheap, and there were a couple of teething issues. But they need to be given a fair crack of the whip, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I'm battling here uh, against uh, leftist uh, critics uh, who uh, are horrified at my uh, welcome to GB News. Uh, frankly, uh, the more uh, television news channels there are, uh, 
the better chance I've got of getting on them uh, to uh, get my point of view across. Uh, and the better chance there is uh, of you uh, getting on them. Uh, it's, uh, the fact that it's going to be a right-wing channel, well, all the channels are right-wing. Why are you picking on this particular one? Uh, it's got to be an improvement, uh, surely, on the BBC. And I think also, Sky, uh, if they can get these problems sorted out. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Look, at the end of the day, any kind of addition to the media circuit is, is no bad thing, as far as I'm concerned. I suppose it does ultimately as well mean one more voice to hold power to account. Uh, and that is good, even if it is supposedly going to be leaning to the right. Uh, I think they're going to do things very differently. It's not going to be a rolling news channel in the same way that Sky News is, for example. They're going to have their topics. The presenters do seem to have a lot more of their own creative freedom and then more license and more freedom to then go and express their own opinions on it. What I would hope, and I hope this doesn't happen, but what I would guard against if I was GB News is the idea that almost through no fault of their own, they appear to have given the impression that they're going to be uh, a right-wing news channel, that they are going to be uh, have, have a certain view on certain things like Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if there are elements of that um, of, of that TV channel that, that then prove not to be that, they've hired quite a lot of people for the BBC, for example. Behind the scenes, there's a lot of production staff that are ex-BBC as well. And there's not everyone there is, is right or even centre-right. And without really meaning to, without really promising anything, I just wonder whether or not they might inadvertently let some of their audience down just because it's not what they expected. But look, you obviously got to let them let them stand on their own two feet, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, the inveterate hatred of Brexit in the rest of the broadcast media, yeah. uh, which you and I are both well aware of and indeed have suffered to some extent from, mm. uh, definitely leaves a space in the market for the majority of the British people uh, who supported Brexit. Ditto this kind of woke, liberal, identity, politics, culture. Uh, yeah. All the stations, all of them, are absolutely infatuated with that kind of cultural politics. So that too leaves a gap in the market, no? Absolutely, 100% agree, George. This is where we're at now, which is if you, you could set your clock really by, if you turned on the BBC, especially a lot of their radio output now, they'll be talking about one of several same issues, right? It'll be something to do with gender or something to do with race, you know, something to do with unconscious bias. There'll be some kind of social issue there. And even their good news story at the end of their segments now, quite often, all too often in my opinion, actually, it's not good news. It's someone has you know, lost their entire family in a house fire and now they've decided to walk from London to John O'Groats. It doesn't make you feel feel fuzzy inside when, when you hear it. Whereas actually what GB News are planning on doing is a dedicated good news section, which I think we need a bit of, because it's not just relentless social issues I think that we keep hearing here on the, on a lot of our, our, our press. There's so much general negativity and negativity about Britain as a whole. There's lots of good things that happen here in this country. We've been known to make some of them ourselves every now and again. And it would be nice if one of the news outlets actually had a concerted attempt to point that out for us. You, wanna, you don't always have to go and feel like you need to go and see a therapist after you watch the 10 o'clock news, George, you know? A very good point. Now, uh, Anthony in Bristol has got a question for both of us, I think. Uh, Anthony, welcome. Hi there, George. Hi, Hi. there, Patrick. Hi, Hi there. Um, George, I was only responding to a point that you made with regard to one of your callers about whether there is an honourable reason for opposing the England players. This was uh, Harjit, yeah. That's right. And I... I'm of the opinion that I would not support England whilst the players are taking the knee. That's a bit extreme, reason, isn't it? 
No, I think you can't really divorce the gesture of Black Lives Matter with the movement of Black Lives Matter, with the organization of Black Lives Matter. And I see the organization of Black Lives Matter really as a conflation of Marxism and anti-white racial hatred. I can go on why I believe that. A yes, do. View, yes, do. Uh, yeah, a skewed view of history, for instance, that somehow white people are the... Uh, the, the, the villainous people of history and others are the injured innocents of history that somehow we invented slavery, brought it to Africa, ignoring the extensive involvement of Africans in, Af in, in slave trade. Mm. And also that white people also have been enslaved throughout history. If you take into account feudalism, serfdom in Russia, and also formal slavery as regards the Barbary pirates and so on. I could go on to many yeah, examples. Yeah. No, you're right on all those things. Of course, the pyramids were built by slaves, and I don't yeah. think the British had been invented yet uh, by then. Uh, so uh, some of the, the, the points you're making uh, are powerful mm -hmm. enough. I'll let Patrick answer, but I, I do have to make the point to you not mm -hmm. to support your own country in the European Championship uh, because... Uh, they want to uh, kneel down for 30 seconds. It's a bit extreme. Well, insofar as they appear to be paying homage, homage to an organization that despises me for who I am, for yeah, my own heritage. They've, they've told you umpteen times they're not actually doing it uh, to any movement, however despicable. They're doing yes, it because I, a lot of them are black and they reckon and that in the United States and in Britain... Uh, black people mm. are getting a, a raw deal from the police. That's how it uh, came about. And not many people would actually, not even many of the police in America would argue otherwise. Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, you make some incredibly good, good points there. Um, what I would say is I'd be quite keen to find out exactly when is this going to end? Do we kneel down before every major sporting event now just until the end of time? Is, is, that, what, is that what happens? I think there's this age-old argument, isn't there, of politics in sport, and it's all very well and good saying that, OK, yeah, and the idea that every time Harry Kane gets down on bended knees in some way launching the Communist Manifesto is a nonsense. That said, this is not my fault. The Black Lives Matter organisation did publish a manifesto, and some elements of that could be considered to be Marxist. And therefore, if you're taking the knee in the name of the Black Lives Matter movement or, 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 or to be seen to be adding, potentially anyway, to be adding soft mm. power to that particular movement, that is politics in sport and i'm not a fan of that that said yeah. politics is everything isn't it i suppose um, and just just lastly as well quickly on, on that one as well i think you're absolutely right you know the british people didn't invent slavery and someone like myself mm. i'm half irish and i'm half greek cypriot mm. you can go trace my family back as far as you like and we were just a different kind of farmer uh, on a slightly different patch of land we, we've never enslaved anyone and the idea that i have to apologize for um, any of my ancestors' past, I think, is I think is a, a bit of a, a failed notion, you know. No, uh, uh, well, my ancestors were uh, white, Irish, and Scottish, and uh, they had no privilege. I can uh, assure you, uh, Anthony. Mm. Last word to you. I'll let you go then. Yeah, sure, George. I would only just say that um, I would just dispute some of the issues around the policing in America, for instance. If you look at the figures for um, homicides, for robberies, and given that. Um, I think it's about 50 to 60 percent with African Americans, even though they are only 13 percent of the population. Well, no, no, and, well, nobody's saying that a lot of criminals in America are not black, but mm. this all began when we all watched live on video 
uh, a man being murdered by a police officer. And uh, he was later convicted of that uh, murder. Nathaniel, uh, uh, Anthony, thanks uh, for your call. Patrick, on the taking the knee thing yeah. is proving uh, now extremely controversial. Uh, yeah. it, it, it falls under that old rubric uh, about the music hall. Uh, it was a good turn, but it went on too long. Uh, it seems to me obvious now that consensus is breaking down, uh, not just uh, amongst uh, the fans, but amongst uh, uh, some of the players. Scotland, for example, are not taking the knee against the Czech Republic, but are taking the knee uh, uh, when they play England on Saturday. Not sure of the logic of that, but there you go. It's beginning to break down. Uh, Friday, I beg your pardon. It's beginning to break down uh, in a bit of disarray. So uh, it really would be a good idea uh, to bring it to a dignified end now, wouldn't it? I think so. I, I absolutely think so. And it touches on something that we were almost speaking a bit about before, which is the dichotomy between what you hear a lot presented to you in the media and actually what the public think. Now, when we had football matches taking place behind closed doors and it was empty stadiums, you know, and actually what you'd do is you'd hear the players, see the players take the knee, there'd obviously be no response to it whatsoever. The commentator would say something along the lines of, you know, this is a, a campaign to end social injustice everywhere and racism everywhere, something like that. And then they get up and they carry on with the football. The second you have fans back in that stadium, a cacophony of boos was ringing out. And that kind of just shows you a bit where we are now. The idea that every single one of those people is racist or the idea that every single individual that calls this show or tweets about it or whatever that doesn't want to take a knee for the Black Lives Matter movement, if they were all racist and we've got an absolutely massive problem in this country and indeed around the world, a problem that I, I refuse to believe we have certainly to that extent. And so there's a huge difference there, I think, between what we're told we should think about things and what we actually, a lot of us, do think about it. What I will say, and I spoke to John Barnes actually um, earlier today, and he said, look, he doesn't see the point of taking the knee. He's a black, he uh, black international uh, footballer. Uh, I should uh, point out to those who don't know him. Sorry, yes, and a singer as well, lest we forget. Um, but uh, but also, uh, he basically said, look, it's time for action now, okay? We've done the kneeling, and that's fine, and that's okay. You can put a fist in the air. But actually, we need to start seeing real change. And so I would suspect if I was part of the Black Lives Matter organisation or one of the players associated with it now, I would be saying, actually, maybe maybe relentlessly taking the knee is holding us back, if anything. We need to start cracking on elsewhere now. Uh, Mike in South Carolina on the G7. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Hey, George. Hi. Good to talk to you again. And you, sir. Uh, uh, yeah, just to, uh, before we go to the G7, just a brief comment on what you're talking about. And, and that is that the whole taking the knee thing and uh, uh, the pissed raise is all uh, a product of American stuff. I mean, even back in the days of the Olympics when we had a few black athletes yeah. who took the podium and raised the fist, okay? And now, the, you know, when they went did to it the once American and it was extraordinarily powerful, but it didn't, oh, yes, become, it, yes. it didn't become a ritual that everybody had to do. No, they were actually uh, excoriated for you know, what they did and mm. the people there that participated. I know, in, in John the Carlos. I, I had the pleasure uh, of spending time with them. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, but in, in the American football, uh, you need to take a look at uh, – uh, this started in the national anthem, and you have to look at the origin of the national anthem who, that was written by uh, uh, Francis Scott Key, who is a, a devout racist, and he has several verses that don't show up in the national anthem that, that are seriously racist. So, you know, take it all with a grain of salt and just look up, look up those lost verses of the national anthem. But let's go to the G7. Uh, it's a joke. 
it's it, I mean it's a, a horrible joke. Just you know, and the only it's only purpose is to further uh, American and capitalist uh, uh, basically empire. And it's the same with uh, with NATO, and it's also the same with the United Nations. Those things should be done away with. Nobody should have power to you know overrule everybody else and what they do. Uh, what we have to go to is a genuine uh, uh, you know world united group that uh, actually you know has representation by population. Well, they may and, say and, you're a dreamer, Mike, uh, but you're not the only one. Uh, thanks for that. John is in Dorset. Go ahead, John. George. Yeah. I just wanted to make a slightly facetious point about all this going down on the knee that the footballers are doing at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder whether... I know I'm being sarcastic, but I'm going to go ahead anyway. I wonder if it would be possible to replace that George Colston. Was it George Colston statue in uh, Bristol? Uh, Edward Colston. Edward Colston, yeah. beg your pardon. Um, with a... A life-size statue of George, uh, oh, God, my brain's gone. Who's the bloke that they're all worshipping at the moment in America uh, uh, with the gun? I don't think they're worshipping him. He's a lifelong criminal. Uh, George uh, Floyd, that's it, George Floyd. Floyd. Flo the, one of the many unfortunate things about all this, Patrick, is that, uh, that Floyd George. himself turns out to be uh, yeah. a, a, a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Uh, yeah, a man exactly. with multiple and vile uh, crimes uh, to his name. That doesn't mean, of course, somebody's got the right to murder him, least of all uh, whilst wearing a police uniform. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the point that John is making is that uh, people have venerated almost uh, this uh, very bad man. Mm. Yeah, well, 100%. And I think when you see as well things like even in, in Manchester, for example, there's a huge mural of uh, George Floyd sprayed. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's actually a very nice piece of art. It's just you know of this of this particular chap in, in Manchester city centre. And these things are, are, are right around the world. And he's become a visible symbol of a fight against against racism. And in some ways, I feel like it's quite an unfortunate individual to have. And not chosen, of course, he didn't choose himself, did he? What happened to him was awful. But to be there, because, you know, he has had a checkered past, to say the least. And there's certain elements of this as well that clearly, clearly, clearly play into racist hands, basically, don't they? Because of the nature of the individual, what he'd done on the day, he was allegedly paying for something with a counterfeit note. He was apparently under the influence of some quite heavy-duty drugs as well. So it all adds to this notion, I think, doesn't it, that essentially allows racist, really, to caveat what happened there and, and almost excuse it in a way that obviously should never should never happen, you know? And uh, this, uh, the, the official BLM in yeah. the United States is, of course, quite apart from uh, its uh, political platform that you refer to, some of its leaders are now uh, being drummed out because it turned out that uh, uh, it was Black Lives Mansions uh, yeah. that they were buying. Uh, some of them in gated, almost exclusively white uh, communities and so on. Uh, BLM, despite receiving millions of dollars in corporate donations and uh, sponsorship and so on, is itself rather a discredited organization now? 
I would argue that it absolutely is. And I know we touched on this earlier relating to the kind of Marxist element of it, etc. Now, I think that actually what they did there was something quite sinister, which was start out as something that they allegedly said was all completely and utterly totally anti-racist. The name itself, Black Lives Matter, is something that you just cannot deny. You cannot argue against that name, right? So they've got a very strong brand there from a political sense as well. And then what they did was kind of then publish their manifesto, keep it a little bit quiet as well, kind of anyone initially you said uh, there's quite a famous broadcaster in this country, for example, who, who lost his or lost one of his jobs anyway for, for saying that they were a Marxist organization early on. Um, and uh, and they kind of I found that quite sinister. But then it's and this is where it does get uh, get quite fruity is that some of the founders of it now, as you've rightly said, have multiple different homes in multiple different uh, plush communities um, uh, uh, and millions in the bank. And you know, you do think that actually could there not be more direct action for black people essentially who've got large matter as opposed to uh, as opposed to represent? Uh, I do think that there is a, a relatively strong militant undertone. However, that said, in a lot of you know pressure or, or activist groups that, that's existed since the dawn of time, I suppose. So that's nothing new. Patrick um, Chris yeah, is as <laughs> always straight talking, straightforward. Always a delight to be with you here on the mother of all talk shows. Well, it's been marvelous uh, for me. I hope it was for you. I don't know if I handled the questions correctly. I don't know if I handled this show better uh, than GB News uh, handled their first show. All I know is they've got a multi, multi, multi-million pound budget and we do not. In fact, if you knew the budget on which this show was made, you'd laugh or cry. You'd cry at least if you were me. So, if you enjoyed the show, please. Oh my goodness, look at the poll. 3,257 people have voted. Yes, 57% of you think that you're going to beat the BBC and Sky. Only 23% think they will not. 20% though think that GB News will fail. I hope it doesn't fail. Good luck, Andrew Neil and GB News. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.